and welcome to the Iran Podcast. I'm Negar Mortazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we talk about human rights violations in Iran and the recent execution of Ruhollah Zam. We also discuss the international mechanisms of human rights and what the incoming Biden administration can do to address violations in Iran. My guest today is Mani Mostofi, an international law expert and human rights advocate and the director of Mian Group. He has also worked at Human Rights Watch and the Center for Human Rights in Iran. He joins me from New York today. Mani, welcome to the Iran podcast. Negar, thanks for having me. Let's start with your latest statement. Your group, your organization helped lead an important letter from uh, two dozen human rights groups urging all stakeholders, specifically the U.S. government and also the Iranian government, to make sure Iranians have access to COVID vaccines. And you mentioned how financial sanctions can be a hurdle to that. Talk about this letter and the impact of sanctions on issues like Iran having access to vaccines. Yes, I mean, this is, of course, a really important pressing issue um, for us to keep in mind, because obviously the COVID pandemic has impacted Iran in a more profound way than a lot of other countries. Iran was one of the first countries hit with the pandemic. It was one of the countries hit the worst. And unfortunately, Iran fits into the boat of countries that have managed it really poorly. There's a, you know, a list there of countries that did not take all the steps they probably should have, and it exacerbated the issue. So now we're a year in of this into this dark tunnel, and the light at the end of the tunnel is really vaccines. So those of us who are following the humanitarian situation in Iran from a human rights perspective basically have come to the conclusion that, you know, one of the top human rights agenda items needs to be getting vaccines to the people to the most vulnerable populations first, and then general populations second um, within Iran. And when you're based abroad, when you are a, a diaspora-based human rights organization, where you have access, where you have influence, tends to be in Europe in, and in North America. So are we prioritized in our advocacy, a focus on getting barriers lifted that are caused by sanctions. So mm -hmm. for those people who aren't following it, there are a whole set of exemptions on paper that allows humanitarian trade to happen with Iran. Um, in fact, COVAX, which is the, which is the um, sort of consortium created by uh, the World Health Organization, WHO, and also Gavi, which is a, a vaccine alliance, COVAX itself has an exemption from OFAC, which is the Department of the Treasury that gives these exemptions to the sanctions um, that say, you know, money that goes through the COVAX process is not going to be subject to sanctions. Now, the problem is, is that Every single day, financial institutions are being told to stay away from the Iranian economy, that it's a bad idea. And some of these financial institutions have been prosecuted or threatened with prosecution. So their general disposition will be conservative and will, will be to require specific assurances um, before they do any sort of humanitarian trade, especially when there is an designated channel. What we've seen now 
is in Switzerland, now emerging in, in the EU. There has been creation of designated channels with Iran finan- for financial transactions around humanitarian trade. But in the cases of countries like Korea, like Korea South Korea, that has a huge um, amount of frozen Iranian assets, these channels don't exist. So if the priority is to get vaccines to Iranians as fast as possible, then there had to be resounding international consensus that whatever is necessary to make this happen, happens. And that includes the U.S. government sending specific assurances to all stakeholders that would be involved in any transaction or distribution of vaccines that these are clearly exempt under sanctions. Otherwise, we've seen, for example, the South Korean foreign ministry has said this, that without those specific assurances, they are not going to do even humanitarian trade. The other part of the letter is also continuing to remind the Iranian government that when they do these types of responses, public health responses, they need to be doing them in compliance with basic human rights standards. So ways that don't you know, include preferential treatment, that don't include um, discriminatory treatment in terms of how vaccines are distributed, and that they should be signaling to COVAX or any other body involved in this that they are using these things for um, clearly humanitarian purposes. So they do that through a due diligence, which means a transparent accounting of distribution and use of the humanitarian goods. And right now, Iran is doing due diligence to the satisfaction of the Swiss, and there's no reason they can't do it in the context of COVID vaccines. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about uh, maximum pressure and its impact on human rights in Iran more later. But now I also want to talk about the recent execution of Ruhollah Zam. This happened a couple weeks ago. He was a dissident living in exile in France. He was the head of a popular telegram channel called Ahmad News, and he was lured to Iraq, then taken to Iran, put on trial, and then executed recently. You wrote about this execution that in the years that you followed human rights in Iran, you have seen few cases that went from arrest to execution in less time. Talk about this whole story of how he was taken beyond Iran's borders and then put on trial and executed and what that means as far as the Islamic Republic dealing with these issues. Sure. And I'll tell the story with a huge caveat that in this case, like many cases involving human rights abuses in Iran, what we know is um, not 100% clear. There's a lot of contradictory information and misinformation about it. Um, Rahola Zam's case seems to be a real priority of multiple intelligence operations inside of Iran, So, and they all have their own agenda. So it's, it's confusing. But I'll tell you the straightest story that I, I've been able to discern. So, yes, Rahola Zam had gained a lot of popularity and following, and it's really around two sets of activities that he did. One is that he was a big voice covering mass protests in Iran, encouraging them to a large extent, and he got a lot of followers around that. And then the secondary sort of sets of issues that kind of drew people to him was that he was publishing a lot of internal documents 
showing corruption and other sort of misdeeds by state officials. Some of these documents turned out to be false, but some of them turned out to be true and, and, and embarrassing for some powerful people. So both of these things kind of um, drew a target on his back. The other thing I think that drew a target on his back is that he's from an insider family. His, his father is a prominent figure within the Islamic Republic. And so he's in some ways a, a defector from the, from the inside sort of political elite of the Islamic Republic. So apparently, um, with this target on his back, the intelligence, specifically IRGC intelligence, the Revolutionary Guard intelligence, attracted him to Iraq under some pretext of potentially meeting with the office of Ayatollah Sistani, the Grand Ayatollah in Iraq that's probably the most important Grand Ayatollah in the world. And potentially for something like funding. Again, this is sort of unclear, but that's sort of what the promise was. That's why he left. Apparently, he talked to French authorities where he was a refugee at the time prior to his trip. They told him not to go. This is according to at least French, the French Foreign Ministry's um, public statements on the case. Um, but he went anyway, and then within a very short order of time, within almost 24 hours of being in Iraq, he was... Uh, in Iran. And the circumstances of it are is unclear. Some reporting suggests that the Iraqi intelligence themselves was involved in the operation. Some reporting and also statements by Iraqi officials say it wasn't. Um, whether or not Iraq was involved is unclear. But what is clear is that the speed of transfer meant that there was no extradition process. There was no legal process. So this was um, essentially a well in U.S. terms, would be called a rendition. And uh, that in and of itself was like extremely troubling. And then within, again, days of him being within Iran, he was on television confessing. Now, from the perspective of people who do human rights documentation, the perspective of lawyers that look after um, fair trial and due process standards, a televised confession is always a huge, huge, huge red flag because it probably implies coercion, physical or psychological or some other form of coercion. And it also is indicative of that there's not going to be a fair trial because if the person within days of being arrested is basically on TV saying, I've done really bad things, I made mistakes, I shouldn't have cooperated with the French, which is basically what Zan was on TV saying. It was a little ambiguous what he said, but he said sort of things to those effect. Well, I mean, that's sort of predetermining the trial. I mean, he's not going to be able to then lodge a defense after that. And we have all, mm -hmm. we, and you know, and we also, then you have all the built-in things about Iranian law, which means in national security cases or cases where there are heavy sentences, uh, Iranian law dictates that um, somebody can't choose their own lawyer, which is actually the opposite of what international international law says. You should always choose your own lawyer. But there's also an understanding that the more severe the consequence, like in this case, Zam faced the most severe consequence of all, which is death with execution, your fair trial guarantee should be stronger, not weaker, you know? So... It was a really troubling case, and the Revolutionary Guard was basically bragging about this rendition, saying what a great job they did. And it was really clear to a lot of observers that this was about sending a signal, signal to people who might be whistleblowers, signal to people who might be participating in mass protests like the one Zam 
had sort of helped galvanize that they will go to great lengths, even extraterritorial action, to um, stop these dissidents. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, Zam was a perfect actor. It doesn't mean that he was necessarily um, a, a hero beyond critique, which some people are taking issue with. He's been painted that, that way by some people. I mean, Zam mm-hmm. was accused uh, by Iranian authorities of stoking um, some violence on his Telegram group. And, you know, Telegram temporarily suspended him, or actually they did suspend him, but they allowed him to restart his channel under a different form. But that indicates that he did something improper. The reporting says that Zam denied that those posts were him, that multiple people ran his channel. Um, but still, that none of that has anything to do with the fact that what happened to Zam was gross human rights violation on multiple counts. You know, he, fa- he faced 17 charges, and one of them is this charge of sowing corruption on Earth. And I think a lot of people who aren't Iranian or are even Iranian, but don't follow the legal system, they have trouble with understanding the huge problem with this charge, because this is a charge that could be used from, for anything. So, for example, if you run a brothel, you could be charged with sowing corruption on Earth. If you're involved in financial corruption, you could be charged in sowing corruption on Earth. Or if you could, you know, like in Zam's case, if you are posting about people going into the streets and encouraging them to go in the streets and um, that's corruption on earth. But it's also corruption, sowing corruption on earth to plant a bomb into a, uh, you know, a public facility and blow it up. So literally almost anything can be charged under that. This is a huge problem mm-hmm. from an international law perspective because what it does is it opens the hand of judiciaries to be extremely punitive without like clear legal standards that guides them. So the very fact that this was his execute this was his charge is very troubling you know there's other charges that exist on other countries that maybe potentially zam could have been charged with so for example you say things like disorderly conduct which you know you get charged with if you're considered to have stoked an illegal riot in countries like the united states you know maybe theoretically zam could have been charged with this i'm not saying that it would have been a fair charge it certainly would have been politically motivated but theoretically, that was possible. But that would have never led to an execution because that's not an executable mm-hmm. crime. But when you create a charge that allows you to execute basically anybody for anything, um, that is a really troubling judicial system. And that's what we unfortunately have in Iran. And Zan's case was a clear example of that. Mm-hmm. And it's not just Rola Zan's execution. We, there are some other people who are on death row with connections to recent protests, as you mentioned, the November 2019 protests or Aban. And then before that, 2017, 2018 protests, Deima. Um, there was a wrestler, a young wrestler that was recently executed in Iran a few months ago. And just overall, it seems like um, there's a lot of pressure on any form of protest or dissent, as well as the civil society. Talk about the general situation of human rights in the Islamic Republic in the past few years um, that we have seen these protests and the subsequent crackdown by the state and security forces. Yeah. Yes. So there's a lot of things that are happening right now um, that are really troubling. And and 
I don't want to say completely unprecedented in the history of the Islamic Republic, but certainly unprecedented in more recent history um, or reemergence of certain behaviors by security forces and intelligence. We saw like back in 2009, we saw mass protests and we saw a huge crackdown on civil society. And to some extent, that leveled off and cooled down after a little bit of time. So in the early Rouhani period, you saw a sort of dip in arrests. You saw some sort of like cooling of the environment in that era. We all, there was also, for example, laws that passed that reduced executions, not political executions, but narcotics related ones. But it meant the executions in Iran dropped by over 50%. So there was, I don't want to say um, an improvement because it was the situation was still really bad, but it was certainly not as acute. It wasn't what we would consider like a sort of rising crisis, like we didn't know where the end of the tunnel was. It was a really bad human rights situation. But what we face now is something much scarier, I would say. So we've seen a reemergence since these protests, and and those two big protests you mentioned should be also put in the context of the fact that there's been a slew of labor protests around the country. Um, there's been mm. movements like mass gatherings by ethnic minorities around different issues. And the Iranian state feels because of these domestic occurrences, but also some of its international tension, that it needs to send us a strong signal. So, for example, the use of like really brutal physical torture has clearly reemerged. There might have been a period of time where it became less common. There was still torture, but it wasn't as physical, as more psychological, uses of sensory deprivation, things like this. But just taking prisoners into prison and just beating them down, like physically, there was kind of a lull. And it completely reemerged in recent years. Um, around these protests, both the labor protests, because some of the first clear cases we had of really brutal torture were were actually labor organizers, but also these um, Aban protests, or sorry, the November 2019 protests and other ones. The other thing we've just seen is like mass level arrests and use of, like you cited, Negar, very accurately, this use of death penalty. And, and that is... Mm-hmm. Um, pretty new. And the other thing that was new, and I would say not new in terms of it's never happened before, but new in terms of degree, was the use of um, violence against protesters. Mm-hmm. In November 2019, you know, the, the figures vary. Amnesty puts the figure around just under 400 documented cases of people being shot and killed um, during those protests. But the state state people in the parliament at least are saying that the figures in above 200 so that's like the probable floor is that and then the who knows how high the ceiling is but that level of um state violence in streets against protesters is something we hadn't seen in a long time in the islamic republic and it's it's a very mm-hmm. scary thing it really shows that they feel the combination of all these actions that they really need to put um, a lid on any sort of growing mobilization and discontent. And I think that puts us, you know, whenever a state is in that sort of psychological sense from a human rights perspective, it really requires way more attention and acute observation to what's going on. 
Mm. And you talked about international tensions. We know military escalation has, um, or military tension has escalated basically in the past year or so. We saw the assassination of Osama Soleimani last January, which was followed by Iran trying to retaliate on the U.S. shooting down a Ukrainian plane, killing 176 civilians on board, and just the uh, ongoing crackdown of of protests of the two major protests you you mentioned and then also dealing with people who've been arrested um given harsh sentences talk about how this international um dynamic or the maximum pressure specifically from the united states and episodes like the soleimani um killing have impacted the situation of human rights in iran and basically the anxiety of the islamic republic dealing with this external threat um how that translates into internal pressure on the civil society on any form of protest and just human rights as as a whole yeah so this is a complex situation because it's always difficult to tease out the motivation of these repressive states because they're repressive in the best of times and repressive in the worst of times but there's a couple things that had happened simultaneously um, that I think kind of led to their psychological decision to escalate things one is during that lull I talked about, and lull is really a generous word, during a time where there was a little bit of a slight opening under the Rouhani administration, we actually saw the reemergence of, of protests and, and organizing in a way we hadn't seen for, I, was, I don't know exactly how many years, but we could say, you know, at least about four years. So since the Green Movement was more or less defeated, um, there were other things that were defeated alongside the green movement. You know, the, there was labor movement suppression, religious minority suppression, women's movement suppression. It's not just these sort of pro-democracy protests were sort of defeated, but it was civil society as a whole. The student movement was basically taken apart and dismantled. Um, same with many of the human rights organizations. So what happened was, there was a reemergence and a reconstituting of civil society and activism that had happened completely outside of the context of anything except for the fact that the you know local civil society activists, you know, ordinary Iranians, still had grievances they had to mobilize around. So part of this response is this, right? It is a response to the fact that domestic shifts have made the state see like, oh, people are mobilizing again. We liked it in the era where they were afraid to mobilize and we want to put an end to this. So that's a big part of the drive. Now, does the maximum pressure, does internal escalation between players have a role in this? I think it's hard to say that they're completely separate mm -hmm. because first off, to some extent, some external actors are trying to provoke things to happen inside of the country. So we've seen, you know, attacks against the Iranian parliament, attacks against IRGC parades, all within this context. And these attacks are clear to be, have some sort of foreign sponsor. We've seen assassinations of scientists more recently that seems to have foreign sponsors. So all of these things are happening together. They're not, so from the perspective of the state, they're not entirely distinct. And the response of the state is not entirely distinct. So I 
try to monitor very closely what happens in Kurdistan and Baluchistan, the two um, ethnic minority regions of the country, because I think those are always the most, or two of the most, I should say, uh, securitized regions. And every time there's a, both an external or an internal trigger, people in these areas report greater presence of intelligence forces, more people being interrogated, you know, more police on the street. So every single time there was both a domestic, say, protest or an externally provoked thing like an assassination, these regions faced it the worst. So after the assassination of uh, the nuclear scientists more recently, you know, there was reports coming out of Kurdistan where tons of people, Kurdish businesses in the region, even people who are just border couriers, people who carried stuff across the border, were all being round up, questioned, told to help the security forces catch the people responsible for that execution, but also under threat. Like if they had it, if they didn't do that, if they knew something, they did, they they knew something and didn't say something, or they didn't cooperate, that there would be consequences for that. So the external sort of geopolitical tension and violence does spill over into the domestic situation and causes more state anxiety and more, I would say, more escalation from security forces in terms of using repressive tactics. I don't think that these things are distinct. Mm -hmm. They also impact, mm -hmm. and this is an important thing a lot of people haven't talked about, but they also impact the international will and focus on human rights in Iran. And I'll give you a very concrete example. So after the November 2019 protests, like I said, these protests introduced a level of use of lethal force against um, civilians and protesters that we hadn't seen in decades. So international human rights groups immediately started strategizing about what to do. And one of the tactics that and advocacy avenues that was sort of settled upon was that we were going to go to the UN and we were going to encourage the Human Rights Council through the member states that are on the Human Rights Council to create basically an, a special investigatory mechanism. And governments hate these mechanisms because they're basically ones that, you know, dive into the subject, expose the truth, and they create the blueprint or the foundation for further accountability measures, whether those be prosecutions under various forms of universal jurisdiction, whether those be um, human rights sanctions on individuals involved, these types of UN mechanisms really create um, the platform for accountability. So this was our strategy. By us, I mean the people who are the uh, diaspora-based human rights community was going to be, let's go to the UN, let's get some sort of special mechanism in place, and let's build off that. And there was some momentum. We had some meetings, we issued a letter, you know, that we were gauging the interests of states, and there was something there. Um, was it going to happen for sure? I mean, these things are always ambitious, but we, we felt there was mm -hmm. the opportunity for it and there was some movement in that direction. But within a very short time, we saw the assassination of Qasem Soleimani. Now, without commenting on the validity of that assassination, it was certainly a provocation that a lot of people, I think, rightly saw as leading to war. I mean, it did lead to, on paper, war because the Iranian authorities set missiles towards a U.S. base. I mean, that is technically war. It just didn't cross over into the type of thing we see as a real war, where it's big and there's, you know, lots of missiles flying back and forth. And thank God it didn't 
escalate to that. But once you get to that precipice of war, any sort of momentum for creating a, a, a mechanism to investigate the death of 400 people on the streets in basically a bread riot, a bread protest, that's not there anymore. The political will is gone. So when the international community, you know, these are the UN bodies, these are EU authorities, these are other member states to the UN system, when they feel they need to use their their diplomatic leverage to avoid another conflict between the US and a Middle Eastern state, that becomes their priority. And people like me who are saying, hey, by the way, can you investigate these uh, killings in Iran? We look silly because to them, rightly or wrongly, it's not as big of an issue. And so Mm -hmm. the geopolitical tensions have continuously created a situation where we can't get as much momentum for international mechanisms as we like. And the, and frankly, the Trump administration hasn't helped. You know, They left the um, Human Rights Council when they wanted to deal with um, the protests from 2017 and 18. They went to the Security Council instead, which is completely wrong procedurally from a UN perspective on how you deal with the human rights situation. And basically, they alienated France and, and Sweden and other allies that were also sitting on the Security Council at the time. So the external stuff impacts the work of human rights defenders all the time. It, it really makes things difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you mentioned the Trump administration leaving the Iran deal and dealing with this situation. There's a but this administration is leaving soon. There's a new team coming in, the Biden team. The president-elect himself, Joe Biden, has promised to revive diplomacy with Iran, to rejoin the nuclear deal which Trump left, and um, there will be an ongoing uh, interest in more talks, and human rights is actually one of the issues that's been mentioned both by the Biden team and also um, in the Democratic platform. How can the U.S. government in general and the incoming Biden team specifically address human rights in Iran in an effective way and basically using the international mechanisms that you are talking about? And what should the U.S. do and also not do to not cause more harm to the situation as it is? So that's the million-dollar question, right? What can we do Mm -hmm. to improve the situation? What can any government do, much less the U.S. government? So for context, the Biden administration is entering a situation much more fraught than either the Obama administration or the Trump administration inherited, because the Biden administration is coming in a time where the claws of the Islamic Republic are, in terms of human rights oppression, are as sharp as they've ever been. It's a very scary time. And discontent with the Islamic Republic, while it's very difficult to gauge, is probably also at a recent all-time high. So, and partly because of um, their human rights abuses and state violence, also because of you know, um, other things too, like corruption and just a general sense that um, any opposition, even within the state, is gone. So the Biden administration has its work cut out for it. And there are people who want to say that there's simple solutions to the human rights situation in Iran. So they, like maximum pressure was a way of simplifying the solution, which is that, you know, if you basically make the Iranian system hurt as much as possible, that pain translates into good behavior. 
Um, there's no evidence for that, not in Iran, really not anywhere else in the world, to be quite honest, um, as far as I could mm -hmm. see. And four years of maximum pressure showed us that that actually didn't help, right? Look, causality is impossible to prove always in these situations. What we can say is maximum pressure correlated with a, an, an environment in which the human rights situation got worse. The blame for that isn't necessarily maximum pressure, at least not the majority of it. The blame for it is decisions made by the Islamic Republic. But maximum pressure as a solution to human rights problems, at least in the, the, sh the time that it existed, we didn't see anything, right? Now the flip mm -hmm. side of that, mm -hmm. the flip side of that might be true too, which is that the era of accelerated diplomacy between you know the Western states and Iran didn't per se lead to by itself a huge improvement in the human rights situation either. But what we do know mm -hmm. is this: we know that the countries that are interested in human rights are essentially the democratic systems. Why are they interested? They're interested because civil society forces their governments to be interested. And in an authoritarian system, you know, governments can't be held accountable to human rights in their own countries or anywhere else. So in terms of international leverage, it's really going to come from Europe, North America, some of the Latin American states, some of the Asian states that are democratic or more democratic-leaning. And that's where it's going to come from, sadly, right? Um, I wish it was, you know, human rights was more broadly um, a priority issue. But in a context where there's um, isolation of Iran, none of these countries have that much leverage. And mm -hmm. the incentive for the Islamic Republic not to do these things, this type of violence is certainly the tendency of some segments of the of the state and certainly the security and judicial apparatus they the, their disposition is towards repression, violence, harsh sentences, um, silencing of critics. That's their disposition. And when there isn't any leverage on the other side, then why would they stop? Now, mm -hmm. does diplomacy and, and removal of sanctions and resumed economic trade shift that dynamic so dramatically that all of a sudden Islamic Republic will become something much better, something that in terms of human rights that we want to see. There's no easy answer there. I can't promise that. But what I do think is that the status quo is untenable. Mm -hmm. The state is not is is suffering, but it's not suffering vis-a-vis -vis civil society. Because civil society is getting weaker at a faster rate than the state is. Actors within Iran are, you know, people who used to do women's rights defense, who were lawyers, a lot of them are extremely discouraged. People who used to organize are extremely discouraged. They're feeling economic pain. Um, they're scared of the state, but they're also scared of their own pocket, their ability to sort of make ends meet. And it's, it's really hurting civil society in a real way. The Biden administration has a chance to create openings that maybe are not there. So... It needs to prioritize human rights in all of its engagement with Iran. So they want to do a sort of compliance for compliance return to JCPOA. That's fine, and that should be fine because that's what the international treaty says, right? And the international treaty is still there. So people should mm -hmm. abide by the treaties that they sign. Our states should do so. So both sides should start to comply immediately. 
And then both sides need to deal with the series of issues that are in front of them of concern. And one of those needs to be human rights. So the Biden administration needs to have a policy where they re-engage with Iran around JCPOA return around Syria, Yemen, you know, missiles, whatever their sort of list of geopolitical strategic security concerns are. But none of that should be used as an excuse or a substitution against addressing the human rights crisis in Iran. Because as I said before, the regional tension bleeds into the human rights situation. I actually think when you have a repression of civil society in Iran, it actually can minimize the extent to which that civil society can redirect some of Iran's foreign policy. Because there's certainly discontent with Iran's foreign policy in Iran, and it doesn't, it's not allowed to be voiced without serious consequences. It can be voiced by some people at the most elite status, but it can't be voiced mm-hmm. in, a, in a very general sense. Um, and there's a lot of sense of self-censorship of journalists and activists within this regard. And they move away from sort of more um, touchy issues towards ones they think they can get away with talking about without getting in trouble. So the Biden administration must keep the space carved out to do whatever it can to promote human rights in Iran while it pursues these other things. And I think to some extent, the Obama administration tried to do that. I think there's this mythology that's emerged, which is that Trump was was really serious about human rights in, in Iran, and Obama was really um, not concerned with it. But I don't think the facts bear that out. Under the Obama administration, mm-hmm. you had a large number of Iranian human rights abusers put on sa- individual sanctions list. And basically, the main policy started under Obama. I don't know if there were people on the sanctions list, individual human rights sanctions under Bush, but it accelerated greatly under Obama. Um, under Obama, there was the uh, creation of the UN Special Rapporteur, which is the main human ra- international human rights mechanism that's monitoring Iran, that's trying to put pressure on Iran. It is the mechanism that led to, as I talked earlier, that led to this 50% plus reduction of executions. Um, and that was a priority issue, a priority policy of the Obama administration while it was on the Human Rights Council. It was started under Secretary Clinton, in fact, and she um, was one of the first member states to announce this initiative, and the U.S. played a huge role in it. So there's this mythology that Obama administration didn't prioritize human rights. What they tried or didn't invest heavily in human rights, and that the Trump administration did. I think what the Trump mm-hmm. administration did was was um, use like more aggressive language, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, more aggressive Farsi language. tweets, more yeah, statements a, from the State Department. Yeah, more like more regular statements on on social media and these sorts of things condemning human rights, and not just. I wouldn't even say necessarily more because there were a lot that came out of the Bush administration, but like with a more aggressive tone. And I use the word aggressive very Mm -hmm. strategically because typically human rights discourse falls under a a sort of legal discourse. And there's some, I would say, like rounding of edges in in tone, which activists don't like. And I agree with it sometimes, like, you know, these things are horrible, they're disgusting, they should be called what they are. But there's a certain tone that's adopted through 
the diplomatic channels that allows people to talk about it without feeling like cornered. And the mm-hmm. Obama administration, like all administrations before it, kind of stuck to that tone and the Trump administration shifted that tone and, and kind of took on the tone that like opposition activists would take. And that might seem externally like they're doing more, but practically they're mm-hmm. not. And I think that's the thing that people don't understand. Like when they left the Human Rights Council, they couldn't be part of effectively creating a, a mechanism to create accountability on the November 2019 protests. You know, when they're mm-hmm. politicizing human rights and putting it right next to other security concerns, right, and they adopt a regime change tone, they alienate any potential ally to put pressure on human rights in Iran that doesn't want to be in that camp, that doesn't want to be attached so directly to the U.S.'s geopolitical objectives in the region or doesn't want to be attached so directly to things that could be perceived as regime change. Mm -hmm. It's a complete mythology as far as I'm concerned that the Trump administration did more on human rights. It might be true, and I think that we could tell the Biden administration, people should tell the Biden administration this, is that the Obama administration could have bumped human rights up higher on its list of concerns um, and figured out more strategies in which to address it. But I, I still see the U.S. government realistically as one of the governments who's done the most, most consistently under the Obama administration to promote human rights in Iran. Uh, for whatever reason, some people might say it's cynical, but factually it was there. And um, I don't think that we should assume that a Biden administration returning to negotiation table about JCPOA or any of these other things means that somehow, you know, human rights is going to be deprioritized from where it was under Trump. I actually don't think that that's the case. Now, Mm -hmm. do I think negotiations are going to lead to great human rights results in Iran? No. But do they shake up the dynamic that has been so locked into place? You know, this we've been slowly escalating towards things getting worse and worse economically, in terms of state violence, in terms of regional violence, in terms of regional tensions. And maybe some resumption of diplomacy can kind of shift that. And when you shift it, that gives opportunities for um, more human rights accountability, gets opportunities for more human rights pressure on Iran. Hopefully it opens up uh, talks between um, European partners and the Iranian government on human rights concerns and gives them some leverage that they don't currently have. So I don't mm-hmm. envy the Biden administration, but I don't think that anybody should assume that they're going to be less effective than um, Trump or the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. Money, let's also talk about the international mechanisms. You've worked with the UN system. You're very familiar. You talked about the special rapporteur on Iran, the Human Rights Council, and on the opposite side, how the Trump administration tried to refer human rights issues to the Security Council and how that didn't work. Talk about how the UN system can and has been helpful in pushing um, better human rights situations in Iran and holding the violators accountable. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of um, misunderstanding about the UN system. And the clarifications don't always help, but I'll do my best. So I was on Twitter 
the other day and somebody was talking about an event that happened at the UN and how, you know, Iranian officials were at the UN and they said that, you know, stuff that they thought was, you know, whitewashing the human rights record of Iran. And everybody posted under, oh, the UN's a joke, the UN's so corrupt, the UN is this and that. And I think that that comes from a misunderstanding of what the UN is. I mean, the UN could be corrupt and certainly problems with it. But I think people need to know what it is, which is essentially it's a gathering of states. It's a gathering of other governments. And these governments are there to enforce certain priorities, international peace, um, development. And one of these priorities is human rights. And within the human rights set of priorities, they've created a bunch of forums or mechanisms in which human rights can be discussed, it can be investigated, and accountability measures can be taken. Not all of these forums are necessarily open to Iran. So, for example, international jurisdiction around um, the International Criminal Court. Iran's not a member of the Rome Statute, which gives that court jurisdiction over Iran. So, unfortunately, the, one of the best accountability measures doesn't apply to Iran. But there are all these other things that do. So the Human Rights Council has created the special repertoires. These are bodies that invest individuals that are charged with investigating um, certain issues or situations. So we have special repertoires on execution, on torture. We have working groups on things like discrimination against women. All of these people have at one time or another, all these bodies at one time or another worked on Iran. Iran's also in a unique situation where it has a dedicated special rapporteur. That means one person whose job it is, you know, seven days a week to monitor the situation in Iran, to reach out to Iranian authorities, meet with them in person or write to them, raise concerns and try to, you know, give them recommendations on what they should do. All of these things might seem soft to the external person because none of them can coerce the Iranian state into doing the right thing. So they basically following the international human rights laws that they've um, adopted by signing different treaties like the International Covenant on Civil Political Rights or the International Covenant on Economic, Social, Cultural Rights. So the UN seems weak externally because, one, it, it has very few coercive measures, and it doesn't the ones that it has at its disposal, it, it's very reluctant to use. Part of that is because these are governments, many of them themselves are human rights abusers, that don't want to give these mechanisms too much power. The fact that they've given them as much power as they have is really astonishing to me. So we should be thankful for that, or not thankful, but we should acknowledge that as a, as a historical reality that's positive. The reason I say not thankful is we shouldn't thank states for, you know, doing what they're supposed to do, which is, you know, treat us with dignity mm. and and uh, respect. So there's not a lot as many as much teeth in the UN system as people would like. What there is is a, is a lot of ability to galvanize the opinion of particularly governments and focus governments' understanding of what a human rights situation is. So what do I mean by that? Most governments don't have any sort of mechanism where they're monitoring the human rights situation in Iran very closely. And most of them don't have any sort of process in which they can sort of raise concerns about the human rights situation, pressure the Iranian government, make recommendations about reforms. But the UN mechanism allows those governments to do that. So they can participate in different reviews. They could vote on certain resolutions. It creates them 
a forum in which they collectively and individually as states can put pressure on the Iranian government through raising of concerns. Now, that gets politicized because there's states with horrible human rights records like Saudi Arabia who will jump all over Iran in these mechanisms. But let's also realize that Iran jumps all over Saudi Arabia and Bahrain when they have the opportunity to do so also. So the politicization of it is there. That's that's an unfortunate reality that needs to be minimized. But it, there is a forum and an opportunity for states who otherwise would never be able to raise these concerns with Iran to do so. And the work of the Special Rapporteur and the Secretary General, both of whom write annual reports, um, biannual, twice a year reports on the human rights situation in Iran, those become the international record of what's happening in the country. So yes, Amnesty International or the Human Rights Watch or the Center for Human Rights, different organizations like that are recording these things. But the we could say the official understanding of it is what ends up in those UN reports. And nine out of 10 times, if a, if a government official that has a human rights portfolio, say in Brazil or in Mexico or wherever it might be, nine out of 10 times, if they've read anything, it's what the UN reports say. They don't read the reports of these human rights organizations um, in the same way or to the same degree of intensity or frequency. So that's what the mm-hmm. UN can do. It can sort of galvanize an opinion primarily among states. It does, of course, have influence beyond states into international civil society. You know, lawyers, International Bar Association, and all these sorts of people also rely on those reports and the work the UN does. But to the extent we want states putting pressure on states, that is where it starts, is within the UN system. Mm-hmm. Well, on that note, Moni, I want to thank you for joining the Iran podcast. Negar, thank you so much for having me. And, um, you know, thanks for doing this podcast. There's, this is really a crucial time with the transition of the Biden administration, because I think so many things that will impact the lives of ordinary Iranians are basically being decided at this moment. So it's good that we have platforms like this to discuss them. Great. And I encourage everyone to check out your work at the Mion Group. The website is mion.org. And also to follow you on Twitter, Mani Mostofi, to see more of your human rights work and advocacy. That was Mani Mostofi, an international law expert and human rights advocate and director of the Mion Group, joining me from New York. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast and subscribe on your podcast apps. Until next time, goodbye.